0: So before we get into the text, which is in Acts chapter 1, if you'll turn to Acts chapter 1, um, Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, as we speak again about the effects of the, God, of the oaths of God, the covenants that God made that affect us and affect the, our understanding of the Bible and the Bible story. Because basically what I'm doing, of course, is taking the covenants that God made and trying to go through the whole of the old and new testament so that we can understand the bible and its storyline more clearly when you take the covenants out or you don't give enough attention to the covenants then it's difficult to see where the story's going and where God's going with um, all of the different books as they come one after another in Scripture. But if we keep the covenants in mind, then we have a route, a path that we can take. And so we arrive here in the book of Acts. And the first chapter of Acts and the first few verses of Acts really uh, pick up from the aftermath of the crucifixion of Christ and address the the ascension of Christ, and what comes before the ascension of Christ. And what comes before Christ's ascension is very covenantally connected. Although the word covenant's not in there, and again, you can, because the covenant language is absent, one can think that the concept is absent, but it's not. It's very strongly present. So let's read together verses 1 through 8, and uh, we'll see how this is unpacked. The former account I made, O Theophilus, this is Luke writing, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So this is the passage. It includes a number of different things that are going on here before Jesus ascends to the Father. Doesn't mention the resurrection, but obviously it's the resurrected Christ who is speaking. And what you're going to find as we, uh, as you go through reading the Book of Acts, especially the first part of the Book of Acts, is that the resurrection takes centre, uh, the centre place in the preaching of the early church. You might think that's surprising. You might think that the, the cross takes the center stage but it's actually the resurrection that takes the center stage and there's a reason for that it's not because the cross is unimportant of course because it's there where christ paid for our sins but look if christ just paid for your sins then your sins would be forgiven that's great that means you wouldn't go to hell good news But it still also means that your life would end and that would be it. There'd be no life in heaven. I mean, God does not have to give you life in heaven. Do you see? With him. He could just forgive you your sins and the punishment was paid for. The penalty's gone away. And so you don't have to deal with your sins or the punishment for your sins. But Jesus conquered death for us. Jesus rose from the dead, and because he rose from the dead, he gives you what? What's the word? Life. He gives you life. Not just the breathing in and out kind of existence that we have here, which we're thankful for, I mean, it's miraculous, it's amazing, okay? But a life that is suffused with the life of God, with the goodness of God, with the joy of God and the peace of God. Things that we glimpse here In just small ways, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we see through a glass darkly right now. It's like having two Coke bottles up against your eyes. You just might see a few things, but you're not going to see an awful lot. But when that's taken away and you see correctly, you see rightly, well, the experience, of course, that comes with that, the utter transformation of Our perceptions and our understanding of who we are, of who God is, of what the world is, of the wonder of, of creation, that all changes. More in, in in dramatic ways that I can't even describe. Why? Because I'm this side of it. But life, life, that's what it is, if you want one word to describe what I've just been talking about, it's life. And that is all in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's why they preach about it so much. The passage uh, here, with its introduction, sorry, tells us in verse 2 that he's taken up after... He, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. These commandments, of course, would be instructions for the apostolic ministry. Then, in verse 3, we are told that he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Many infallible proofs. Uh, people down through the ages, they've wanted to say, well, Jesus, you know, he could have swooned in the in the uh, um, empty tomb. He could have swooned once he was put in there and uh, recuperated and kind of somehow staggered out. I mean, he'd just been crucified and whipped. OK, but he staggered out and presented himself. Victoriously to the disciples. Can you imagine what he would have looked like? I mean, these open fissures in his body. Pale-faced, <laughs> weak, sweating, dirty. That's hardly something to celebrate. It's like, well, let's get him away from here as quickly as possible, you know, as to not embarrass his, uh, his teaching before now. That is not going to transform a bunch of disciples who, by the way, fled. It's not going to transform them into people that spread this message throughout the mediterranean world and transform the mediterranean world and gave their lives for it if they knew that jesus hadn't conquered death let's be sensible that's a daft theory and it's not what the bible says It's not what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says he saw the risen Christ. And here it is the risen Christ who is teaching the disciples. Now, you don't have to believe that. Okay? Christianity is not about shoving this down your throat. You can reject it. You have that power of decision within yourself. But don't try and say that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ rose from the dead victoriously, gloriously. He didn't just stagger out there in his old body. He came with a glorious body. In fact, the body of the Son of God. Because that's who he always was. He is life. Life is in him. Therefore, is anyone who's going to take on death and defeat death, it's going to be the son of God himself. It makes perfect sense. Death cannot be there if the author of life challenges it. Does that make sense? The one who challenges death can do away with death and bring life in its place and give life in its place like he did in the original creation. And so he showed himself with many infallible proofs. But you don't have to believe But then it says that he was seen by them, the apostles, during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So the main burden of the risen Christ's teaching was about one thing. Wouldn't it have been wonderful, you know, uh, to have been present when the risen Christ was teaching. I mean, it would have been wonderful to be in the presence of Christ teaching at any time. But the, the risen Christ, to know what his emphasis was, to know what his burden was during that 40-day period, what he kept coming back to. If we didn't have this verse, we wouldn't know what he taught. We wouldn't know what it was all about. But here we're told. We are told that Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God? Well, I hope if you've been listening to my sermons for long enough, you know. The kingdom of God is the future kingdom that Jesus, when he comes back, is going to set up on this world, on this earth. You see, this earth is made through him and for him. So, of course, he's going to come back to it. He's not going to leave it as a diseased and corrupted uh, remnant of what his father originally created. He's going to come back and he's going to beautify it and glorify it and make something of it that befits divinity. And he's going to people it with redeemed people like you, if, you've know, if you know Jesus as your savior. That's the kingdom of God. So there are, there is teaching by good men that says that the kingdom of God's going on right now. Welcome to it. Welcome to it. You say, well, where's the evidence that it's going on? Well, they say because of the changed lives of, of believers. But that's great. That's a great sign and it's a wonderful thing and praise God for it. But, um, You, like me, are not the complete article, are you? You are still ravaged by sin. I had to apologize for a faux pas just a few minutes ago. If I was sinless, I wouldn't do that. You mess up. You make terrible decisions, unwise decisions. Things escape out of your mouth that you immediately regret. You get angry without a cause. You feel envious towards people. You feel, uh, you know, distaste towards people, even though you don't know what they're like. You have problems with the sins that we all have and the temptations that we all have. We're not finished articles. Welcome to the kingdom of God. Or not. Because if that's what the kingdom of God is, uh, you know, you can have it. Okay? That's not the kingdom of God that Jesus was preaching about here. It wouldn't take him 40 days to t- talk about that. You know, oh, by the way... Uh, you're going to live in a world where there's still going to be slavery. And there's still going to be sin. And there's still going to be corruption. There's still going to be all kinds of wicked things that go on, things that, that uh, Satan delights in and things that turn uh, the stomach, if you knew about them, that would turn the stomach of an angel. These things all go on, and that's what the kingdom of God is. Come on. And as we'll see in a minute, that's not what the disciples understood him to be saying either. They knew he wasn't talking about some kind of Ooh, spiritual kingdom. Okay. Quite honestly, to me, that kind of understanding of the kingdom of God is wishful thinking. That's us trying to tell ourselves Isn't everything wonderful? Isn't it great now? Okay, now that I'm saved, isn't the world a wonderful... Now, come on, get off it. You know it's not. You know your life's not what it is going to be. You know the promises of God have not been fulfilled in your life now. Look at these things. Okay, I can't see the print of this Bible because, you know, unless I put these things on. This is not the kingdom of God, folks, okay? What he means is a physical, material, and spiritual, a transformed kingdom, an environment in which peace flourishes when a wolf lies down with a lamb, when a little child can put his hand down the, uh, the hole of a, an asp or a, a, a poisonous snake, they can lead bears around. Okay, do you see much of that going on now? No. That's the kingdom of God. Peace wherever you go. You, there's no more valley of the shadow of death. There's no more evil places that you stay away from. There's no dark alleys that you don't want to go down. The kingdom of God's going to be a real transformed place. Everywhere is going to be uh, ref- suffused by the presence of God who's going to be right there in Jerusalem, governing the world in peace and righteousness and goodness and justice. That's what he was talking about. And that does take quite a bit of time to talk about, doesn't it? What it all means. When's it, uh, uh, when it comes about. And the covenant of God that speaks to the kingdom of God? Well, there's several. There's a Davidic covenant. What is the Davidic covenant about? Come on, somebody tell me. It's about kingship. 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 Down traced to the line of David. Jesus isn't in, in the line of David. He is the last king. People say he's reigning now from heaven. Great. That must be wonderful. But what about what's going on down here? We need him not in heaven reigning. We need him down here reigning. That's what it's talking about. That's the kingdom of God. Okay? When we've actually got a kingdom down here with a king. But well, what about another um, covenant? Well, the Abrahamic covenant has uh, promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and therefore the people of Israel, that they will have possession of a particular land. It's described in Genesis chapter 15. They've never inhabited that land. It goes all the way to the river Euphrates. That's going to be in the kingdom of God. So the Abrahamic covenant is part of that. I believe the priestly covenant that's made with Phineas in Numbers 25 and is repeated In different places, it's repeated in Malachi 3, it's repeated in Jeremiah 33 and several other places. Psalm 106, this covenant is also going to be reenacted. And then, of course, there's the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. We've been to all these places, by the way. I know you, you don't remember and I don't blame you for that. But we've been to all of these texts in our journey through the Bible. In Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 through 34 speak about this amazing change, this redemption of the people of Israel, the salvation of Israel. Ezekiel 36 says the same thing. Many other passages speak about this same thing and they put it on earth. On earth. This world, this, this Uh, ball that we're on. Okay? It's not just a vehicle to get people saved and then to discard. It is a creation that God called good and then got bad. And he's going to be good again because God fixes things. God makes things, you know, not to, oh, well, this one's beyond me. This one's got away from me. This one I'll have to get You know, just discard and start all over it. No. God is a God of redemption. Of regeneration. That is what Jesus is teaching about. Now, I wish that I could have been present in some of that teaching. That would have been extraordinary. What hope For the future, it would have been uh, given to these disciples in this world, this side of glory, this side of things. when, When their lives were going to be nothing but what? Struggle and pain and suffering for the cause of Christ so that the truth could get out there. Yes, they willingly did it. And they had the joy of the Lord and the peace of the Lord in doing it, but it wasn't an easy life for them. And now they are in heaven awaiting the kingdom that Jesus taught about. Verse 4, it says, being assembled together, now this is afterwards, obviously, with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me. And this has to do, as you can see from verse five, with the baptism with the Holy Spirit, which occurred at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two. You can read about it there. By the way, every Christian. If there are real Christian has been baptized with the Holy Spirit. this is First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. In fact, let's just go there so that we can uh, knock that one on the head and be clear about it, okay? First Corinthians chapter 12 We'll start from verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, he's talking about the church here, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Well, that we is every Christian. You've been baptized with the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian, that's how you got out of Adam and into Christ. And that happened in Acts chapter 2. And of course subsequent to that with everybody who was trusted in the Lord Jesus. Now what's interesting about this though, and what may have caused some uh, questioning, which meant that some time was spent on this is that the promise of the spirit is connected with the coming kingdom of God it is in many places in the Old Testament you see it for example in Zechariah verses 12 uh, chapters 12 and following you see it in Ezekiel 36 many other places but you see as I've Told you before. In the Old Testament, the first coming of Christ, what we call the first coming of Christ, and the second coming of Christ are fused together in the same verses, in the same passage. And so, there's no real understanding there of um, or discussion of the fact that there is a gap between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. This was taught by Jesus, uh, particularly in the latter, latter part of the Gospels, when he spoke about his second coming and so on. So he's going away and then he's going to come back again. In Luke chapter 19, he speaks about the fact that it's going to be quite a while. And boy, it's been quite a while, hasn't it? But still what Jesus did when he died on the cross is he instituted or inaugurated the new covenant in his blood. And so the new covenant comes in earlier than the kingdom of God. Do you see? Because of Christ's death two thousand years ago. And we, when we trust in Christ, we are, uh, we become parties in the new covenant and Israel the nation of Israel will itself eventually behold the one that they pierced and they will become parties to the new covenant as well at the second coming so there is there's some theological ground to cover as far as the promise of the spirit is concerned there is a sense that The spirit is uh, present, but the kingdom is not present. But we all know where we're going. We all know that the transformation that the spirit has has, uh, wrought within us, if we've trusted in the Lord Jesus, leads to our presence in the coming kingdom. And so... The disciples here have a question for Jesus. It's in verse 6. And it's a very straightforward and easy question, or at least one would think it's an easy question uh, to understand. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're they've spent a lot of time listening to the greatest teacher who has ever lived speak about the kingdom. And they ask this question. What is the question about? The question is about when, when is the kingdom going to be um, restored to Israel? Israel. Because they're Jews. And there are all of these promises in the Old Testament about the restoration of Israel. So, of course, they want to be clear on this. Now, they know that it's going to happen. They just want to know when it's going to happen. Do you see? Very human question, isn't it? Okay? Kids ask it all the time. You know, when, 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 when? So will you at this time, now that you're raised from the dead, now that you're going to show yourself, or so they thought, to the world having defeated death, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And his answer is, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons, which is what they're asking about. Which the Father has put in His own authority. God's timing is God's timing, and he's not going to share his clock with you. He's not going to share his timetable with you. I wish he would. Don't you? Don't you wish that you knew when the rapture was going to happen? Wouldn't it be great? I mean, just imagine what you could endure if you knew that a rapture was going to be like in 385 days and 26 seconds. I mean, you could just, I mean, you'd be fine, wouldn't you, with whatever life put upon you, because you would just be counting down to that time. But God hasn't told you. You have to live by faith. You know that thing that makes you depend on God and not yourself? That's how you have to live. Believing that God does have a timetable and it is going to come about just at the right time. So Jesus here, it says, it's not for you to know. The same as it's not for us to know. The times or the seasons. Now that is a clear answer to a clear question. They're asking about the time when the kingdom of God is going to come. Jesus is responding about the time, saying, none of your business. And then he goes back to what he was talking about in verses 4 and 5, the Holy Spirit. So now you see that question about the restoration of Israel is out of the way. It's been answered. Then he speaks about what's at hand, the work of the Holy Spirit, their present work as uh, before he departs. And, of course, in the next few verses, you have the ascension of Christ back to heaven. Sadly, though, I I have to say that there are many readers of the book of Acts who come to that question in verse 6 with their minds already made up. And they say that Jesus' response in verse 7 and verse 8 is an answer that roughly, paraphrased, goes like this. Look, you bunch of idiots, I've been telling you that it's not a literal kingdom, down uh, material kingdom at all, that the church, what you're going into, that's the kingdom of God, why can't you get it right? But that is not what he says. He just simply says, it's not for you to know the time. Not that, no, you've got that question wrong. I've been with you for 40 days. Have you not listened to a single thing I've said? The kingdom is now a spiritual kingdom, not a material kingdom. Why are you asking about a material kingdom? He doesn't say that. He doesn't correct them about their understanding of what the kingdom is. Neither could he do that because God has made covenants and he has to stick by them because his character is connected to the oaths that he took. What this means is that the kingdom to come is going to be a literal kingdom that Israel is going to have. A part to play in that kingdom as a nation and any teaching that says the church is now Israel or God's done with the people of the the, sorry, the nation of Israel as a nation. That's a false teaching. It's not based in the covenants of God. And people can say, well, you can interpret the Bible any way you want. Folks, I know you can. But that doesn't mean you've interpreted it right. I was talking to somebody the other day who says, you know what? I just think that the Bible can be interpreted in so many ways. I don't even go there. This is a Christian. My answer was to him, well, you know, somebody differs from me in their interpretation of the Bible, but they give an intelligent response Then I can respect them even if I disagree with them. But somebody who just says that without, uh, knowing what they're saying, with no, nothing to back it up, I won't even engage them in conversation about it. He didn't understand I was talking about him. The fact of the matter is, Jesus answers the question very clearly, the kingdom is a material kingdom. He didn't correct them, which means that they had it right. When somebody asks you a question and you see that they're, you know, they haven't got, got it right, what do you do first before answering them about the subject at hand? You have to correct them, don't you? Not to correct them is to uh, allow them to continue in error. Jesus is the truth. Do you think He's not going to correct them? He never had a problem cor- uh, correcting them when He was uh, living in His ministry, did He? Called Peter Satan. I don't think he had a problem with hurting people's feelings. This is why, folks, there is only one interpretation of the Bible. Yes, we're going to be—we're not going to get it one hundred percent. Of course not. Of course we're not. But if we just believe that the covenants mean what they say, therefore God means what he says, things get a lot, lot clearer. And anyone who disagrees, then you will see what they do. They start bringing assumptions to it and saying they don't argue from the Bible. They start arguing from their own independent reasoning. Honestly, I've wrote a dissertation on this. They do. Instead of going to what the Bible says, they start spinning theories and then bring those theories to the scriptures. I was going to read you one of these uh, these scholars, but um, I decided there's no point. And how do I conclude a sermon like this then? Well, it's very simple, really. The kingdom hasn't come. You're not living in it. You're not deceiving yourselves. Your eyes and your ears and your other senses are telling you the truth. This is not the kingdom. This is a present evil world that you're having to pass through as a pilgrim. You have to keep your eyes on the goal, which is the kingdom of God that's coming. That gives you hope. You draw hope and strength from that because you know that the God who has promised full salvation to you a life of uh, indescribable joy and wonder is ahead for you not mundane existence but an existence that is far beyond anything that you can conceive of right now just imagine the existence of God. well he wants to share that with you in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, thank you that your covenants can keep us on course. that oaths that you've sworn, to do and to fulfill our oaths that must be fulfilled literally. And anything that conflicts with those oaths, Lord, that's our problem. That's our error. And we need to go back to the drawing board and make things line up with what you've promised to do. We know that Jesus is coming back. We know that he's establishing his kingdom upon this earth We wait for it, Lord, with bated breath. We, like the disciples, want to know when you will restore the kingdom. Bring it back, Heavenly Father. Send Jesus. But in the meantime, Lord, help us to occupy in reliance upon you until you come. In Jesus' name, amen.